0: good morning Um, this is a little busier room than it was at 7 o'clock this morning I'm gonna do a little overlap on some of the stuff I talked about this morning about managing acute pain I think it's not just the time of the day it's probably the challenge of this population that we're all dealing with right now so most of what I'm going to talk to you about is not really evidence-based I'm going to talk to you about some of the struggles and strategies I've had in the setting that I work with to try and develop somewhat of a consistent pathway to help manage these patients. I did pass out a PDF uh, of our substance use disorder pathway and I can certainly um, email it or share it to folks if they didn't get a copy of this. A um, couple of disclosures, I do do some consulting with Pisera. The other thing I want to make clear is that I'm not an addiction medicine specialist. Uh, I'm a nurse that's done pain for many years um, but I'm now in a setting where uh, we see a huge uh, population group. And I, I also want to give acknowledgement to Jim Walsh, who is a addiction medicine specialist in Seattle. He works at Swedish, and he works with pregnant uh, mothers and babes and has been really a tremendous resource to our acute pain service. And I'm actually sharing a lot of the types of comments and presentations he gives. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little about the challenges that we see in this population. I'm going to talk about some clinical tactics to try and keep these patients safe and engaged in care when they're in the hospital. And I'm going to talk about specific treatment modalities for, the, for these patients. Before we start, though, um, as I mentioned, I've been in pain about 30 years. And like many of you, have really seen the pendulum shift from very much under treatment. very much reserving opioids only for pa- patients with cancer and end of life, to now the far end. And certainly the pendulum is coming back and uh, hopefully it won't come back too far. But I think we all have to really examine our own beliefs, experiences, prejudices, biases when we're working with this group. This is a great uh, book if you like history. It's got a beautiful cover on it. It was recommended at the beginning of the decade of pain control and research, and it's, it's really the history of kind of this political, socio-economic uh, issue that we have with, with opioids. And um, it's a bit of a scathing co- commentary on the US war against drugs, but, but I would highly recommend it. Um, I love this quote, it's easy to summarize the facts, but far more challenging to encapsulate the passions that drugs arouse. Feelings range from giggling, enthusiasm, or nonchalance at one extreme to the deepest dread of corruption, violence, pollution, and death. Um, Jim Walsh uh, works with a nurse, and she gave him a great quote, which I think is really relevant, and that is when we're working with patients with substance use disorder, we really have to think about working with them without a sniff of judgment, because this is a group that feels judged, this is a group that no matter what you think, you do judge on some level, and it's a really difficult thing, I think, for us as clinicians. So how big is the problem? Um, I'm just curious, who in this room has not been affected by heroin or prescription opioid substance use disorder? Probably you're all affected clinically how many of you have not been affected personally all right so maybe about 50 percent still that's an alarming amount I I don't know how you get your how we get our mind around these numbers I mean the personal stories are so tragic but certainly this is uh, something that usually affects all of us and if you look at just in 2013 the number of deaths um, not overdoses and other problems from both heroin and prescription opioids, it's, it's staggering. Um, and I think, you know, we're in an era now where there's a lot of confusing messages. This is a billboard in New Jersey. Um, and I think patients and parents and the public are very confused. It really says on this billboard heroin addiction can start in the most innocent of places under a bridge, but in a dentist's chair or a pediatrician's office. Um, So, you know, I fought as a pain clinician many years that association between providing opioids for acute pain, let alone chronic pain, and some of the problems we have in the country now with the epidemic. Clearly there's a lot of other factors that play into it, but there's there's plenty of evidence that there is a correlation between therapeutic exposure and abuse and substance use disorder. I just don't think we can uh, ignore that anymore. So again I wanted to tell you a little about my experience I'm in a new setting I was at the University of Wisconsin for close to 30 years I've been at the University of Washington now for about five years and I'm in the uh, Harborview Medical Center which is one of four of our hospitals it's the level one trauma center Um, you'll notice in this upper left-hand corner the beautiful that's kind of the University of Washington Medical Center most people think of Seattle they think of that you'll see Mount Rainier in the background you'll see the Husky football stadium right outside the Medical Center beautiful gorgeous city Um, that's not where I work I work in Harborview which is next to the i-5 You'll notice the interstate in the front of the I-5. I mean, when when I first moved into this building, there was this huge crack in my office from the last earthquake. I couldn't believe that the building was still open because it's so old and decrepit. Um, There's 3,000 people that live in the jungle underneath that I-5, and we regularly get on our trauma service stabbings, gunshot wounds, um, problems from drug problems, homelessness, mental health, Uh, we serve the whammy region so we serve 20 percent of the landmass of the United States it's Washington Wyoming Montana Idaho Wyoming did I say I can't remember and it's really quite incredible um, the number and the types of stories of patients that you see Uh, heroin was something that I certainly saw in Madison Wisconsin and I know we all see all over excuse me But um, just a couple of examples of stories you can't make up. A couple weeks ago we had a young man, well actually he was in his 40s, who was started on heroin when he was forced to be a soldier in uh, Somalia at the age of 11 by his handler. Um, We've had patients that have come in who've tried to get into treatment and their partners have forced them to um, inject. We serve uh, 67 languages as a port of entry into the United States Uh, And, you know, as a patient safety net hospital and a trauma hospital serve victims of domestic abuse and torture from all over the world. So uh, working with patients that have homelessness, mental health, addiction disease uh, is very much more complicated than I had an appreciation for in terms of just that whole socio-biopsychosocial experience of treating pain. Um, This is not too unfamiliar, I'm sure, to most of you. These are... uh, statistics from Seattle, but you'll notice the spike uh, in both um, opioid and methamphetamine-related deaths over the last couple of years. Washington is unique because it's the only state, I think, still in the union that has taken state agency for medical directors' guidelines on opioids and made those into legislative rules. So a couple of years ago, we saw a bend in the prescription opioid crisis, uh, but certainly a spike in heroin uh, because of that. This is from a uh, Seattle Times article, which I think was um, quite poignant to talk about just the incredible situation that we see on the streets. Um, this reporter said, you can buy heroin in front of the QFC, which is a grocery store chain, for less than a or chicken. I can't even pronounce it. He said, clicking through his photos, you want junkies? I've got junkies, dead junkies, junkies shooting heroin, live junkies. Um, the pain service that I work with as well has said in the 25 years, they've never seen it so uh, horrendous. Just last week, we had a drug deal go down in front of our advanced practice nurse uh, on our pain service. The patient was in isolation, and the, they didn't, the drug dealer didn't even want to change, and so right in front of the nurse, they were exchanging uh, medications. We see patients actively using on the corner, in their hospital rooms, so it's, um, it's a horrendous issue to deal with. This is really a complicated group of patients to take care of too, they are really sick. I often try and put them in the context of palliative care uh, because you know if patients don't get into recovery, uh, they usually don't live very long. Um, There's multiple organic diseases that are comorbid um, present, Um, definitely impaired immune responses. We see a lot of problems with infections, with healing. There's a lot of issues with tolerance and cross tolerance, uh, very messy, very difficult to predict. Uh, physical dependence and withdrawal with uh, multiple agents, not just opioids. Um, Clearly some altered nociception threshold, Um, lots of behavioral issues that are hard to sort out, is this fear of withdrawal, is it mental health, is it pseudo addiction, you know, why why are people acting out? Is it just the confusion and inconsistency that we end up providing through our healthcare system? Tom Edwards, who many of you may know, has worked at Harborview for many, many years, and and his quote was really that failure to account for tolerance is the most common cause for confrontational behavior when treating patients with addiction, and I would say that's true. So the problem is, when you get somebody, how do you know who it is? Um, Here's a good example. Has this guy got substance use disorder? Or did he just have a bad weekend? right Uh, you don't know unless you ask so uh, again uh, I think in all clinical settings now you know we've talked a lot probably at this meeting about risk screening for considering opioid treatment but I think excuse me we need to really look at universal precautions in terms of screening all patients for substance use disorder and um, again there's other talks during uh, this week that'll probably give you more specifics about treating addiction but um, things that are helpful to do is really use these open-ended questions and kind of assume use not do you use but what do you use and when patients just share that information with you say okay thanks thanks for being honest with me Um, we found an interprofessional team that people are really open sometimes it's the chaplain um, or the rehab psychologist that really get this background information versus the uh, pain service staff. Uh, when did you use the last time? And very importantly, do you have any um, fear or do you feel like you're having some impending withdrawal symptoms? You know, really get an addiction history when you can. And this takes some time. Sometimes you really have to establish trust and rapport. Um, A lot of these folks have had really bad negative experiences and as I said feel judged and are judged by staff Um, sometimes if you ask about use in the past it might be a little uh, less threatening than saying what are you doing now and really kind of listen to what are the past encounters they've had what are the past problems and you can often hear if there's a recovery story there you know has somebody really tried to get back on track and failed and, and why have they failed So this is another thing that I always share from Jim Walsh. Um, You know, we talk a lot about patient experience when they're in the hospital and often an experience of someone with substance use disorder is one of shame, guilt, and fear. And you see it all the time. People are young mothers, you know, they they have babies at home and you know, they're just very um, remorseful and embarrassed and shameful that they are saying that they're using when we know they have children. And what we're trying to really do is provide a care experience that is really one of grace, respect, and care. So I love those three uh, words on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, if you have or can create some kind of an expert, I think that's really helpful. SBIRT is um, screening, doing some brief intervention and referral to treatment. We have engaged uh, an addiction counselor in our daily acute pain service uh, to go out and specifically help with patients that we're having um, worries about. And there are engagement screening, kind of scaling so you can see where somebody is in this process. Because a lot of times people are really not even contemplating or they're really early in and um, they're not willing to engage at that time versus somebody who's kind of moved towards some action or they're in the maintenance phase in terms of helping try to figure out what resources are best to to provide and and how to get them going. And I think it's really important for us to remember that failure to engage in substance use disorder treatment is not failure. Um, People, this is a lifelong disease, Um, people will come back often multiple times and they might not be ready this time but they might be ready the next time so it's worth every time they come in asking if this is the time that we can kind of help them get into recovery so when we're talking about treating acute pain in the hospital with these folks I think it's important to start with the goals of care one of the first ones is to keep these patients safe from overdosing either in the hospital or out on the street we also want to keep them in the hospital to complete their care Uh, We don't want them bolting against medical advice, going down the street, spreading infection, coming in uh, two days later and now being in the ICU because they're sicker. Um, It's important to minimize uncertainty and inconsistency with both the patient and the staff so everybody's on the same page. And to provide consequences that are just and equitable. You've probably all been in situations like I have been where in an attempt to keep people's behavior safe like Uh, patients get punished if you go outside against you know you smoke in the room you go you do something we're going to withhold your opioids that's not fair and unsafe people need pain treatment so you have to be clear about what the consequences are Um, I think the goalposts might be a little narrower but we're still aiming for the same goals with acute pain treatment Um, understanding tolerance issues, following relevant pharmacologic principles, using oral dosing, using multimodal therapy, having a plan of care, communicating and engaging the patient in that. Um, And then really when behaviors look kind of off, trying to figure out why is that behavior? Is it a coping problem, anxiety problem, um, misuse problem? And this is really where it takes a village. You really need an interdisciplinary plan of care and communication with these folks. Um, Inconsistency is just agony I think for both staff and patients and families. Jim Walsh tells a story which I always like to repeat because I think it it, uh, is a great example. Um, Pregnant patient with substance use disorder, hospitalized, wanted to go out and smoke over the weekend. Somebody let her go out and smoke. Came back in on Monday. She said, I want to go out and smoke. And he said, you can't go out and smoke. That's not something we allow. And very angry. Burst out at, at him. Lots of um, behavior. And she said, you know, this place is worse than prison. He was like, prison? What do you mean it's worse than prison? You know, we're trying to give you a... I, 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 I don't get that. And she said, you know what? In prison, at least you know what the rules are which I think is so true, right? One nurse will do this, another nurse won't. Um, One physician will do this, another physician won't. So inconsistency really is, I think, the uh, genesis for a lot of problems that we deal with. So again, commitment to caring. I care about you, I care about your pain, I care about your safety. Um, Making clear decisions to use multimodal therapies besides opioids and kind of separating the opioids from those other things. It's not tit for tat, it's not like you know if the Tylenol doesn't work or the NSAIDs don't work, we'll give you opioids. That's, that's not the way um, we can present them. Um, trying to depersonalize. It's not my rule. This is, this is our standard of care. This is how we work with patients, and this is, um, this is why we're doing this. And trying to be non judgmental. I think gathering a case conference is really important, and sometimes you have to do this every day, and sometimes you have to do it a couple of times a day uh, when you're really trying to get a, a good plan. Um, These are in your slides, I think it's really helpful when you're working with uh, other staff, young staff, uh, even ourselves to really practice, if you will, kind of how to deal with difficult conversations when patients voice frustration and um, anger, um, threats to leave AMA, you know, to be able to have um, some language that helps. This must be very difficult for you. Sounds like it's really terrible. I believe you have pain I want to continue to work with you you have the right to leave the hospital but I still cannot prescribe or give you additional medications so again listening to the story empathizing uh, establishing trust and rapport but again being firm depersonalizing limits can be really helpful so remember when you're treating pain you're treating pain you're treating fear of pain and you're treating fear of withdrawal so again, that whole non-pharmacologic as well as pharmacologic um, treatment is very important. And we talked about this this morning, but it's, um, it's very difficult. You really have to individualize, uh, like we do in all situations. All therapy must be guided by the patient's response. And really important to go, have appropriate, uh, clear ass- assessment and documentation to share that with other caregivers about what the plan of care is and the standard of care. Excuse me. Um, So I'm gonna talk a little about uh, use of methadone to stabilize both uh, behavior as well as craving and withdrawal. Uh, Sometimes it's important to use scheduled rather than PRN. Oftentimes it's important to use scheduled versus PRN to cut down on some of that negotiation and that um, issue of, you know, will you treat me or do I have to stand in my head and scream to get you to treat me? So again, here's that cartoon we've all seen about what are all of the options, and um, as I said earlier this morning, not only combining drugs um, with different mechanisms of action, but uh, combining both physical and cognitive and behavioral strategies is really important, and so education, patient engagement, and information is really helpful. Gabapentin and pregabalin perioperatively very trauma, certainly supported by the APS ASA guidelines that were published this spring in the Journal of Pain. Uh, tons of evidence that, in addition to neuropathic pain, this can be very helpful in uh, surgical pain models. Um, you know, it's not like you're going to be able to avoid, and there's no reason that you need to avoid opioids uh, in this uh, group. Um, but you're not going to see, like, you know, a 70% reduction in opioids the other thing that's nice about both of these drugs I think is you know they can be helpful for anxiety and for nausea and vomiting so they're often used in um, withdrawal protocols and they can just be very effective kind of for other issues that you see this population we use a ton of ketamine uh, ketamine as you know is an NMDA antagonist that can um, try and block inhibit blunt some of that um, wind-up phenomena again if you look at the clinical studies you don't see this huge Opioid sparing effect. I think that's 5 to 20 MED of morphine in probably like a 24-hour period But um, again, it can be very helpful uh, in our population We have to be a little careful because a lot of the homeless group has mental health issues And so as a dissociative agent, you know, sometimes we'll see these behaviors that aren't really the typical psychomimetic hallucination nightmares, but you just see this kind of like behavior that's more uh, agitated, aggravating, acting out, and I wonder sometimes if it's just the ketamine that kind of uh, inhi- disinhibits uh, this group. So um, but again, it's used uh, a lot as part of a multimodal agent. Um, one of the things supported in the acute pain guideline this spring which was really surprising to me as the co-chair of that group was the evidence on using tens units for incisional pain Um, we've implemented this now in the hospital i'm at on all of the med surge units they all have a couple of them and if you look at the evidence they it's used as kind of like a prn intervention three to four times a day with activity put across the incision And again, it can be very helpful uh, in this group. Give some patients something to do, and you know, there's often two channels on each TENS unit, so they can sometimes treat a chronic pain, and then they can treat, you know, their acute pain, and um, very little side effects with the TENS unit. So, let's talk about um, how to use opioids in this group. First and foremost, high dose opioids are okay. You're not gonna make anything worse. There's nothing worse than two grams of heroin a day. You're not gonna
1: you know, cause
0: addiction, you're not gonna necessarily cause a relapse. We don't really know. Um, opioids still are a cornerstone in acute pain management and this group has a lot of tolerance and can tolerate a boatload and sometimes you're better off to just give them a boatload right up the front so you get that trust. Because if you have a, you've seen it all I'm sure in your patients, if you have 12 or 24 hours where everybody's kind of like holding back and patient gets into withdrawal or just has terrible uncontrolled pain, it's very difficult to get that trust back. So I think it's important to respect tolerance but not let it drive our dosing. They need more but they don't need 10 or 20 times more than the average person. I have seen patients tolerate up to two milligram IVPCA doses, but that's um, extreme. We often don't do that. We often use two to three times what you'd give an opiate-naive patient. The acute pain guidelines really say, don't start long-acting, don't increase long-acting, there's very little evidence to use long-acting, and that short-acting oral PRN opioids should serve as the basis for opioids in acute pain. So again, I think we have to stick with the relevant pharmacologic strategies or principles, but it might be worth scheduling um, these for this, for this group. Um, PCA can be extremely useful, I think, in this, in this group of patients. Uh, it gives them control, it cuts down on them having to negotiate, Um, Oftentimes, when we do use IVPCA, we get rid of the RN rescue bolus. We just make sure patients have an adequate ability to manage it themselves. So again, there's not this whole negotiation behavior about getting all of their extra doses. Um, And as I mentioned, disentangle the non-opioids from the opioids. It's not like one or the other. They both come, and they're both for separate reasons this is another guiding principle to remember it's not about what they're going to do it's about what we're going to do because it's just crazy what people will do um, as I mentioned earlier um, you can expect all kinds of things to go wrong and you just have to be prepared for how do you deal with that what do you do when, when that goes wrong so here's another example of a common case um, this is a 25 year old male who was involved in a motor vehicle accident screen positive on admission for non-prescribed opioids and alcohol he's been out of the nursing unit for a while He comes back and he looks quite intoxicated so what do you do this is kind of a difficult room to get a lot of chatter but how many of you have a clear policy or standard of care for what what you do in this situation in writing does anybody Yeah, we don't, and this is a really common scenario, right? I mean, what about his safety? What about his pain control? Um, So we've gone ahead, and that's part of what I, I don't think it's probably in the PDF I I shared, but we've tried to establish a standard of care about what happens. Um, Staff document and communicate the behavior and the um, potential aberrancy, try to communicate with the patient very promptly, very directly that, we're going to withhold until uh, it looks like it's safe, until the signs of intoxication go down so that we don't overdose you. We do a UDT to find out what actually substances um, may have been responsible for the patient's signs of intoxication. We switch from pills to oral solution. Um, and again, um, sometimes we've had to inform patients. You know, it gets really tricky when we have a lot of. Patients with necrotizing soft tissue infections and they have central lines and they're going in and out and they need IV antibiotics and you know, oral antibiotics aren't the best and the safest way to do, but it's a very challenging uh, to try and establish what are the consequences and advise everybody else about what to do. But again, our goal is really to keep these folks safe and still treat their pain. You can use some medications for withdrawal management. Um, I, I, apparently, they don't really help that much, and I think they just can compound the risk of sedation um, and sometimes prevent you from using you know, other drugs that you want to use. Um, I didn't realize this, but um, I think methamphetamine withdrawal looks sleepy, grumpy, hungry. I don't know if you've ever heard that a typical patient who puts the blanket over their head for two three days when they get admitted and swears at you when you walk into the room like stay away from me They just want to sleep and when they wake up they're ravenous and hungry so um, again think about what other agents what other withdrawal syndromes that you might be seeing because most most of these folks have polysubstance use yes sir Yeah, we've had a lot of discussion about starting doses for gabapentin. Um, I have yet to see a lot of data to show anything under 1,200, to 1,800 a day is analgesic, and I have always worked with providers who've been very liberal. So you know, even though there's a lot of people that start at 100 or 300, I wouldn't recommend under 600, especially in this population. Uh, I would start very high and. Um, you know you can't really overdose on it. it it might cause sedation and mental sluggishness but it doesn't cause respiratory depression so I'd start at 1200 in some of these actually the pre-op dose recommended in the guideline is 1200 milligrams so I think I would dose it the same I mean I don't know if there's anybody who uses it in a withdrawal uh, protocol here but I would probably use 600 to 1200 three to four times a day yeah well I mean gabapentin is used to prevent seizures and so like for alcohol withdrawal syndromes and I think anxiety and just I mean gabapentin uh, imp- I don't know about pregabalin—lot, a lot of off-label use it's been used in hot flashes and other things so you know it's, sometimes it's just a nice agent to use so um, methadone for stabilization um, most people that use it and some of the literature if you look uh, would say that most folks with like heroin or opioid substance use disorder can tolerate 30 milligrams a day. And again, the reason we give it is to prevent withdrawal and to try and reduce craving, and it's really remarkable, I've seen this, how it can sometimes stabilize people's behavior. So we start out at uh, five or 10 milligrams three times a day, and then titrate it every couple of days, aiming for a maintenance dose. Um, We usually, within uh, that first week or so, separate it so that we go to once daily dosing to separate the methadone from the opioids used for acute pain. Uh, At the same time, then, trying to engage the patient into some kind of medication-assisted treatment at time of discharge. Um, The decision to go with um, buprenorphine versus methadone is often based on the patient's situation. Uh, I just have to look at this. you know, certainly, if somebody has um, had multiple attempts at treatment, um, is going to have ongoing pain for many weeks, maybe in a less stable social, social homeless home situation, uh, we're going to go with methadone versus buprenorphine uh, if, the, if the pain's going to be you know shorter duration not, not a bigger issue I mean I think the country is really looking in the CDC guidelines and increased resources for treatment going towards buprenorphine although I think you know in trauma settings this has really been a challenge now as we're seeing a bigger population of people coming in who are on buprenorphine and in and, and urgent traumas and then how do you use opioids and treat them and, and I have a couple slides with Michigan's um, algorithm on that so again there's some sessions on buprenorphine you know that this binds very tightly to the receptor if it's given to someone who is uh, opioid dependent it will put them into frank withdrawal it still has the risk of QT prolongation just like methadone does so um, but you know there's There's work going on, there's some grants about looking at buprenorphine induction in the emergency department 24-7, and so it's certainly something that we're starting to initiate on the inpatient setting. Um, I know this is pretty small and you can't really see it, um, but you can easily Google this. Most people have looked at this in hospital settings. This is the University of Michigan. They have online um, their algorithm for using buprenorphine. This is for elective surgery. so again, at the top, someone's going to have a more minor operation, probably not pain for a long time, you might be able to just keep them on their buprenorphine and increase the dose through the perioperative period versus if somebody's having like a big major spine surgery, you might want to delay it, and get them off the buprenorphine, make sure they haven't had a dose in at least five days so that you can then hopefully um, better use um, opioids. This is for the non-elective, more urgent case, <clears throat> and again, it talks about, um, you know, assessing the amount of time since the last dose of buprenorphine. I think the half-life of this drug is something like 24 hours. It's very variable. You know, oftentimes you have to use, the, you know, the, the so-called high-affinity opioid at high doses for the first couple of days, but it's very difficult to know then when is the pain going to come down when the buprenorphine wears off, and then you're at this huge opioid dose and get into tr- to trouble. So um, a lot of multimodal adjuvant therapy is helpful. So I'll, I'll give you one more case. Um, this is a 40-year-old woman who's homeless. She's got hepatitis C, and she's a current injection heroin user admitted with multiple soft tissue abscesses and fever. In the past admission, she's left AMA due to uncontrolled pain and withdrawal. The pain service was consulted and she was started on methadone during her hospitalization and gradually increased to about 80 milligrams a day to, as I mentioned, prevent withdrawal and reduce craving. Um, She's using eight milligrams of oral hydromorphone for her acute pain and she's offered assistance to engage in addiction treatment and she says, no thanks, I can take care of my opioid needs on the street. So now what do you do when you gotta send this person home? Right. She's been in for two, three weeks, maybe a month. She might have initially said, yep, I'm interested in treatment now. She says, nope, I'm just fine. So that, that's kind of the dilemma that you have to, have to kind of decide. So again, care coordination, hospital discharge, interprofessional care is so important um, for these folks. We, we've had trouble just with the timing of getting people into their first dosing for methadone Um, treatment programs, it's really important, I think, when you make a personal relationship with your local treatment programs to kind of help you coordinate this, see if you can do some of the intake when patients are still in the hospital. Um, We've had a number of cases where we've used this three-day rule where the patient can actually come back to the hospital and a physician can give them their daily methadone dose, especially if it's like over the weekend or um, holiday, you know, we'll have the literally the orthopedic resident get paged and come down to the pharmacy and administer the dose to the patient until they get in. Um, Jim Walsh would say you know they can certainly go out and use heroin they've been using it for 20 years and go to their induction first dosing at their methadone program next week or in two weeks I mean it's not like that's not what probably happens anyway Um, So what we try to do is, um, if that's the situation where the patient's really not engaging in treatment, we just stop the methadone. I mean, it falls off slowly. We may give them uh, a day to two to three of some short-acting opioids for their acute pain, but we know that they're going right back out and using heroin the next day, and so it's probably both safer for the patient and for the community to just say, okay, well, then you're done with opioids um, for your acute pain. And um, again, there's a lot of sessions on uh, administering a prescription for naloxone overdose kit, but it's something I think we have to certainly work into our routine uh, with this group. So um, again, I think a nice, riveting, startling ad which always struck me, but when you are sending anybody out the door, uh, we're doing a study right now, just a little quality improvement study of just Patients without substance use disorder, calling them at two weeks and saying, "How much did you use of your prescription? Um, did somebody instruct you on safe use, disposal, and storage? What are you going to do um, with those when when you're done with them?" And you know, we've only got like probably a dozen patients, but I would say at two weeks, most patients have used about 10 or 12 tablets. They haven't used 60 or 90 or 120 or 240 or whatever we're sending them out the door with. So. We do have to think about um, public community safety. So thank you for your attention. I'll stick around uh, if people have comments, questions, other things you want to share? Yes, sir.